1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm pleased to be joined by Jennifer Thompson, Assistant Professor of History at Bucknell University. She is the author of The Wild and the Toxic, American Environmentalism and the Politics of Health, being published as we speak by the University of North Carolina Press. I think the official publication date is May 13th. Dr. Thompson, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. This is a big pleasure.
1: Well, I have to say that this is uh, this is not the book I was expecting when I knew nothing more of it than its title. You know, there's been a, a huge surge in interest among historians in environmental health over the last 10, 15 years or so. And so there's, you know, books on urban problems, you know, lead and asthma in the cities or, or in the country, things like radiation, black lung, you know. And so I kind of thought that a book on, you know, the politics of health was going to be kind of a survey of maybe stitching some of these narratives together about kind of the history of environmental health. But it's not that book, um, though you do touch on several of those topics. You've really written a much more surprising and, and I think much more interesting book, um, one that, that looks not just at sort of the subset of environmentalism that sees itself as doing environmental health activism. Um, but you really take on the most prominent strands of the environmental movement since Earth Day. And, and you find health everywhere, even in the most well-known and kind of most written about events and, and folks. And you and, and know, say even this is true of the characters as well. You have, you know, if a reader were to squint at your book, they might think this is some great man history of American environmentalism because you you take on David Brower and Dave Foreman and Gary Snyder and Wendell Berry and James Lovelock, Bill McKibben, all these very famous folks. And yet your approach to them offers a, a fresh new way to assess their thinking and their politics, and especially their activism. Um, so could we just start kind of a big, big, broad question? Why, why do you think health has proven such a useful lens to use when re-examining these kind of canonical events and figures from the 1970s and 80s?
0: Well, thanks for that introduction. I'm, I'm glad that I've managed to write a book that you weren't quite expecting. That's, that's kind of nice <laughs> to hear <laughs> as an author. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess the way I would start is to say that, you know, I, as I thought about this project, as I approached it, Uh, obviously I began from the basic observation that in fact, if you think about uh, environmental activism, at least in the United States context in the post-World War II period, health really is everywhere. Right. And I, so I started from that observation and then I said to myself, why is that? Right. Like, why is it that health is everywhere? And what does that tell us? Right. And that, that took me down this road of thinking about what does health actually mean? Right. And, and why is it that it is everywhere? And, does its very ubiquity, in fact, point to some sort of fundamental issue with the concept itself? And I think we can get into that maybe as we, you know, sort of move through our conversation about the book. But just on, on a very basic level, there's kind of two things that I think taking help as a category rather than as a very specific window into one form of activism allows us to do two things. The first is to see across uh, what are often assumed to be Uh, normal or fundamental lines of difference between different forms of environmental activism, right? And this is something that's plagued the field of environmental history uh, for quite some time, right? So drawing these kinds of distinctions between anthropocentric versus biocentric environmental activism or drawing lines between direct action and, let's say, DC-based lobbying, right? These kinds of divisions uh, are often assumed to be... uh, the sum total of what the landscape of environmental activism is. And that I think prevents uh, us, at least us being the community of environmental history scholars from really thinking more deeply about interactions between different individual activists, but also interactions between different strands of activism and different ideological uh, understandings of of what it means to be an environmental activist. And then secondly, uh, it really allows, or at least I found that it allows us to think about environmental history, and in particular, the history of environmental activism within the broader field of American political culture. So again, you know, to kind of turn a critical eye on my very specific field of environmental history, oftentimes we've taken environmental activists themselves to be the primary drivers and determinants of what environmental activism looks like. Instead, what I'd like to see us move towards is thinking about how environmental activists are embedded within a broader political culture, responsive to that, and finding their own choices constrained by that. And once you start to think about environmental activism in that way, which is what health allowed me to do, uh, it starts to show not only how embedded environmental activism is within these broader changes, but also... How narrow it is compared to many other forms of activism that were happening at the same time.
1: Ah, that's so cool. Yeah, it's 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 wild because I'm reading the book and I'm like, this is just the, the best book I've read in environmental politics in the longest time. I'm like, oh yeah, it's also about health and like, but it's like mm-hmm. health got, got you in there. It got you. It got you in, and it really helps to stitch all that together. And I love that. Um, so let yeah, let's get into it. So you begin the book with chapter one. Um, by looking at the large national environmental advocacy groups that are operating in the 70s. And you especially zoom in on Friends of the Earth, which was mm-hmm, founded in mm-hmm. 1969 by David Brower after he had become famous during his tenure leading the Sierra Club in the 50s and 60s. Um, I hope, you can you help us sketch out Friends of the Earth's environmental vision of health as you see it? And and also one of the things you do again and again in the book that's so um, exciting and remarkable is that you are able to really convincingly link the concept of health that they're the kind of the vision of health that they have in, in their pol and with their the groups individuals politics and their activism and so what did that look like for for friends of the earth
0: yeah so you know of the four case studies in the book the case study that opens the book which is you know of course that of friends of the earth um, is maybe perhaps most reflective of kind of the long durée of thinking in the 20th century about the relationship between environment and health at least within the Anglo-American context, which, of course, is what this book is is dealing with. Uh, Friends of the Earth, which, as you said, was was founded in 1969 by David Brower after he was uh, unceremoniously ousted from the Sierra Club, was deeply sort of grounded and committed to an understanding of the environment as a life support system. Um, So health for Friends of the Earth, uh, at least in its beginning years, largely marked the degree to which humans uh, and to a slightly lesser degree, other species were able to remain free of disease within a particular environment. Um, so maybe one thing that that would kind of you know bring this to life a bit for for listeners here uh, is a quote that I in fact like bring in in the introduction. So this is from 1970 from Friends of the Earth, and they wrote, "Quote: The ultimate result of any form of pollution is that it has a debilitating and even lethal effect on a life support system, and the Earth's environment. All of it is our." italicized life support system okay so friends of the earth was very uh very informed by you know rachel carson's work on the way that you know pesticides spread throughout an ecosystem and affect uh, various forms of life uh in their first long decade of activism which is really from 1969 until 1984 which is the period i concentrate on in the book friends of the earth really had its hands in everything considered to be An environmental issue at the time, and was very active in pulling issues into the environmental realm uh, that had previously been considered outside of it. Uh, In the book, I talk about the organization's engagement with uh, both nuclear power and pesticides. Uh, Those were two areas of work which uh, dominated a lot of their activism, dominated a lot of their organizing, and which were Incredibly inflected by ideas about health and in particular ideas about how unchecked technology and unforeseen consequences of uh, this unchecked technology would poison the environment and in turn end up poisoning the humans living within it.
1: Yeah, and then by the end of the seventies into the eighties, you know, many of these groups are transforming themselves into major beltway players and lobbying and litigating. Um, for Friends of the Earth, this transformation uh, accompanied or maybe required a, a, sort of a scaling back of this conception of environmental health that you just described. Um, so, how did how did the group come to think of environmental health in the eighties, and how did its forms of activism change accordingly?
0: Yeah, no, it's an interesting story, right? I mean, and that was one of the things that I didn't necessarily expect to encounter as I did the research, but ended up being quite a large piece of this story, right? So one of the larger changes I trace in the book, in particular, this chapter uh, on Friends of the Earth, is the story of how large national level environmental groups uh, were given at least a marginal purchase on federal politics in the late 1970s. Uh, So the Carter administration uh, ran on a environmentally conscious ticket, Uh, Once he got into office, so in early 1977, uh, he started contacting certain environmental groups, inviting them uh, to come to the White House and participate in these uh, strategy sessions, largely around energy, uh, but then also considering environmental issues more broadly. Uh, The choice of whether or not to participate within Friends of the Earth was quite contentious, and that's one of the things I look at uh, in the book is the struggles between different staffers, uh, to argue either for engagement with the federal government or uh, maintaining a kind of outsider status. Uh, unsurprisingly, perhaps to to many readers and and just to you know people knowledgeable of environmental affairs in general, uh, the environmental groups that were invited to participate found that their voice was uh, sidelined <laughs> quite quite early on. Uh, and for Friends of the Earth, this was this was fairly traumatic. Um, it coincided with. Uh, severe financial issues within the organization, uh, some extreme turnover in staff. uh, And this coming at the same time as this argument over whether or not uh, to contribute to, you know, the workings of of mainstream politics meant that uh, significant internal divisions were provoked, particularly between older staffers uh, who were dedicated to what they understood to have joined, which was an organization committed to uh, maintaining an oppositional stance, right? One One of the ways that Friends of the Earth understood itself in the very beginning was as an uncompromising organization that would maintain enough distance from the levers of power to actually authentically critique it. We can talk about the extent to which that was a legitimate political position or not, but that was certainly how people understood what it was that they were doing. So in 1976, 77, 78 when these debates and transformations were going on, there were certain staffers steeped in that older culture very determined to maintain it, right? Oftentimes in in relatively contentious and uh, feisty ways. And then there was a whole set of new staffers who were becoming acculturated to the idea of Friends of the Earth as a mainstream beltway organization and In fact, that second group won out, right? And Friends of the Earth uh, streamlined its own operations. uh, It reorganized itself internally. And by the early 1980s, it was sitting down in conversations with other organizations and forming the group of 10, right? The group of 10 environmental organizations who decided that they would be able to function best if they in fact modeled themselves on a corporate model. So one of the things that happened at this time is that, Friends of the Earth's initial understanding of health, right, as something which integrated various kinds of life forms, attenuated. And it, in fact, became transformed into a more individual consumer health focused understanding of health, particularly environmental health, as something which could be uh, both managed through proper individual choices, but also ensured through simply participating in the established channels of government, right? Voting, signing a petition, calling a representative, et cetera, which was compared to its earlier understanding of political engagement, uh, fairly narrow.
1: Yeah. Can you say how, yeah, more about how consumerism fit into that? Yeah. So choice, yeah. yeah,
0: certainly. Um so the way that I tell this story, which is certainly not the only way the story uh could be told, uh but the way I decided to tell that particular part of the story was by thinking about activism that certain staffers at Friends of the Earth engaged in around pesticides. Uh so the organization was was deeply involved in Uh, pushing back against the use of pesticides, both by the Forest Service, uh, but also by USDA. Um, Several of its staffers were deeply interested in uh, organic farming and integrated pest management. So there was a lot of work done around that. But by the late 1970s, the primary way that work was happening was through the organization partnering with small businesses specifically partnering with small businesses like natural food co-ops or outdoor gear stores, this kind of thing, um, in order to circulate literature talking about how consumers at those stores could protect their own health. And then by extension, the health of the environment through particular kinds of consumer choices. And so they, you know, Friends of the Earth was working on this kind of language. And really, by the time you get to the early 1980s, And you think about what the landscape of environmental protection looked like at that time, given you know the Reagan administration and bad.
1: uh, It was bad. (laughs)
0: Exactly, right? Like this kind of consumerist, individual-oriented language gained a lot of traction, right? It meant a lot of sense in the context of not only the diminished possibilities for environmental protection, but really like the resurgence of neoliberal economics at the time. And there was this Mm -hmm. kind of synergy between. This narrow vision of environmental health and and the broader field of American political culture.
2: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over thirty-five different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two-minute meals. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, fascinating. Uh, let's let's move to your second case study in chapter two, which is Love Canal. Mm-hmm. And most listeners probably know the history of uh, course. Niagara, you know, Niagara Falls neighborhood became the center of debates about toxic toxic exposure remediation after this buried waste from a long gone chemical company seems to kind of poison residents in in the late seventies, especially children. Um, and you know, lots of scholarship on Love Canal uses it to kind of show how unreceptive. Mainstream national environmental groups were to health concerns, especially those of working class Americans, um, and you know this idea that like, well, that's not an environmental problem; that's a health problem. We don't, right. we don't right. do that. Um, but and, and you, you you do look at this that, that kind of opposition, oppositional oppositional um, relationship. But you do something else. Um, you try to look very carefully at how those residents' experiences shaped their environmental imaginaries, as, as well as their politics and activism. Um, and, and I love that you never you begin by saying we can't take we shouldn't take for granted. Sort of just straight. I think you say you shouldn't straightforwardly accept that residents are going to foreground their own health concerns mm-hmm, in this way. Mm-hmm. I think whenever we, whenever we're dealing with politics, assuming that well, naturally people would say this or do this, it's always you're always going to learn less than you could. Um, and so, I, you 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 a really fine grained analysis of kind of how their politics came to be and their and their environmentalism also. Um, and there's a great uh, newsletter you pulled out of the archives that is, is somebody telling. You know the fellow residents in the neighborhood to to look at your hedges. You know, use that as an indicator. If your hedges are sick, what is it doing to you? And this really, it's felt very real to me. I imagine, like when I call my father, I learn more about his specificia or his rhododendrons than about about his health. And um, so, I guess, as, what does that, as an example, reveal about how Love Canal residents constructed health knowledge? Yeah.
0: No, it's interesting, Brian. Like that question, and I, I think I'd like to you know start at something you brought up in the in the beginning, and then and then move to this quote about the hedges, right? So. I mean, I do think that one of the most interesting but also challenging aspects of the Love Canal case, and really about a lot of these cases where local communities are making arguments about their own health, which have been embedded within the larger story we tell about environmental justice, is the naturalization work that happens when it comes to the concept of health. Right. So, what it seems what seems to be kind of a dominant characteristic is that when we look at these cases, we say, Oh, of course they're talking about their own health. We all know what that means. Let's move on. Right. Let's move on and think Mm -hmm. about how their arguments about health got mobilized uh, to pursue certain kinds of politics. uh, What were the limitations of that, et cetera. But the very basic concept of health itself remains pretty much uninterrogated. So that was one of the larger objectives I had, in looking at the Love Canal case, right, it's something that's been analyzed frequently, right? It's something which you know has been argued whether it has a place in thinking about environmental justice or not, which we can you know talk about that if you want. Um, but no one's yet asked what did these people even mean by health, <laughs> right? I mean, they they yeah. suffered all <laughs> kinds of terrible health consequences as a result of living on top of you know twenty thousand barrels of buried toxic waste, and we you know, have a good documentation of that story. But when they themselves articulated an understanding of their own health and then situated their health within that of the environment, what does that actually tell us, right? And so then to go to the quote that you read, uh, right, which comes from a June 1979 uh, citizen's newsletter, um, the author is connecting hedges, neighbors, and the self, right with this idea that the kind of damage that was coming from these buried toxic materials would be percolating up into all of the various life forms in the neighborhood right but in particular this person was focused on the hedge right which we could assign uh, quite a bit of significance to right we could think about the hedge right. <laughs> as kind of an archetypal archetypal <clears throat> symbol of suburban private property And the fact that this author took that, right, took this kind of natural symbol of private property and the division of one home from the other as, in fact, a litmus test for ecological health and understanding, uh, reveals this kind of sense in which residents were thinking about the chemicals as something which not only threatens their own bodies or the bodies of their neighbors, but which in fact threatened the internal boundaries of the suburban neighborhood itself. And so it's something that was fundamentally destabilizing both to their own physical state of being, right? but also to the kind of normalized boundaries through which they understood and experienced their day-to-day lived environment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, to go back to the environmental justice mm-hmm. piece, you know, there is this ongoing debate about whether or not Love Canal belongs in that story um, and whether or not that it does. I, I think what's interesting, what you do, and we mentioned this in, in earlier, is is your approach to to think kind of capaciously about the political currents that are that are in, in affecting the um, situation on the ground there. And it, often with environmental justice, it's sort of folks are quick to say, well, it's all just, you know, it's coming from this this lineage of social justice. You know, liberation movements in the fifties and sixties, um, and you say that we can learn a lot about Love Canal by by looking at, at at really the things that are happening later and the political transformations and the political culture changing later. And sort of it reminded me of a, a past guest on the program, Natasha Zaretsky, tries to do something similar yeah. with Through My mm-hmm. Island, and mm-hmm. Radiation na- Nation. And so, um, so could you lay out a few of, of the other things going on politically that are not civil rights movement from from before uh, in the seventies that are that you can see having an effect on? Love oh, Canal? for
0: sure, yeah, and and I mean, I you know that that's a great kind of summary, right? Like it's. Love Canal is oftentimes sort of reflexively thought of within this framework of, is it part of EJ or not, right? And 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 the kinds of answers you get when you want to filter it through that matrix are, you know, either an a uncritical celebration of it as kind of a early precursor of environmental justice, which is a fairly naive position to take, or you get an outright rejection of it, right? Which is, you know, largely... Reflecting the kind of conservative, xenophobic politics of many of the residents, um, and also, you know, being very conscious about the fact that the activism of residents, uh, at least of the white residents who have become most famous through their work in the Love Canal Homeowners Association, um, was in fact uh, blind to, if not actively hostile to, uh, civil rights activism. Uh, so the way that I, you know, think is more productive to think about the case of Love Canal, in particular the activism of the white residents at Love Canal uh, is through kind of two strands of, of what was going on in, in the U.S. more broadly. The first strand is a very particular formulation of xenophobia uh, as expressed towards refugees coming both from Cuba and from Southeast Asia. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that uh, my analysis of canal residents activism reveals is that they were intensely concerned with the influx of refugees uh, at this time in the mid-1970s, and in fact used the identity of refugees both to critique the federal government's provision of assistance to these incoming uh, populations, but also, interestingly enough, and, and somewhat ironically, to claim their own status as refugees. So they kind of take on this mantle, this identity of being refugees, of being made into refugees from the action slash inaction of the federal government, uh, and and, and try and use that discourse to, to in fact, uh, get some traction with the federal government. So that's really the first uh, formulation that I put it in the context of. And the second is really the erosion of the social rights that white Americans, ever since the passage of the GI Bill, had been accustomed to expect from the federal government. So, by the 1970s, particularly by the late 1970s, uh, these kinds of um, programs of social assistance, right, what Ira Katz Nelson has called affirmative action for white people, uh, had in fact started to be rolled back, right? So, what you see at Love Canal is a working class population uh, that's deeply conscious of changes in its own status and oftentimes their reaction to realizing that things they had taken for granted were no longer going to be available uh, was to um, express resentment towards the populations that they thought were now getting what was rightfully theirs.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. And the refugee stuff really jumps off the page. Like, what is going on here? <laughs> but it's really, really rich. And again, it just shows it's a, it's, it's a very 70s, 80s thing, you know, And as all, as all history is in its own context. Uh, your third chapter, you look at... Um, biocentrists. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I'm reminded of a recent episode. Or you can go back and find Keith Woodhouse uh, uh,
0: yes, discussing his book, book.
1: The, e- the Ecocentrists. <laughs> um, and, and these are the folks who you remind us were, were among those who, who made a posthumous environmental star out of Aldo Leopold, in part because they were drawn to his notion of land health. Um, so what appeal? Or who were these folks? What, what appealed to them about health metaphors? And, and how did these kind of animating metaphors inform their politics? and mm-hmm. action?
0: So I talk about two general groups of biocentric activists, though they're you know, they overlap quite a bit, as, as I'm sure you noticed in, in reading the chapter. Uh, so the first is uh, a group of folks who came to call themselves bioregionalists. This includes a whole range of people from uh, Gary Snyder, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet, uh, to Peter Berg, uh, who originally was part of uh, the Diggers in San Francisco, uh, also part of the San Francisco Mime Troupe, ended up uh, becoming a bioregional activist. Uh, people like Raymond Dasmond, uh, and also uh, people like Wendell Berry, right? Who you mentioned in your in your introduction. Uh, so they they constitute one half of the analysis in that chapter, and the second part of the analysis is grounded in Earth First, uh, and in particular in its in its own understanding of health. Uh, so approaching these folks and approaching how it was that they were holding on to health and using it as a vehicle for their own uh, politics they really saw it as something which would allow them to open up people's consciousness to see the connection between human bodies and all other forms of life in a way that both decentered humans without eradicating them if that makes sense so the, you mm-hmm. know the, these folks mm-hmm. and, and of course they had different Different kinds of political objectives, but they were very committed to an idea of uh, all forms of life being interconnected and equally valuable. So for them, health became a vehicle for describing that network, for in fact visualizing uh, the interconnection of all life forms. And then when it came to their own practice of politics, which took a whole range of different forms, right? And listeners may be. Uh, particularly, listeners that listen to the show about Keith's book may be very familiar with um, Earth First tactics, right? So, things like um, blockading uh, logging roads or spiking trees, these kinds of nonviolent direct action uh, interventions. Uh, the bioregionalists, on the other hand, were committed to things like land restoration, uh, stream restoration, uh, cultivating certain kinds of Uh, fish populations, which had declined, but also, uh, and much more so than the Earth First folks, the bioregionalists were very interested in developing different forms of human interaction, both amongst humans, but also between humans and the land. So they put a lot of work into cultural enterprises um, and into thinking about health as, as as an active and ongoing practice that, you know, humans would engage in as a way to strengthen their relationships with other humans, but also as a way to develop what they might have described as a more authentic relationship between humans and the environment.
1: Yeah, and, and these folks seem, among all the characters in your book, um, maybe to make the most intellectually and politically adventurous use of the concept of health, you know, and, but yet I would say that at the same time, they seem to be the ones that most quickly and frequently run up against the limitations of, of health. Um, especially because it just, you know, it seems like not, not naturally and not always, but so often it's folks, ideas of health are so clearly linked to human physiology and sometimes that's rhetorically useful, but for biocentrists, it's often not rhetorically useful. I um, mean, it kind of runs up into kind of when they're trying to defend the non-human world. And can you say more about yeah. that? Tension?
0: No, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you, when you th- look at what biocentrists are saying, uh, across the board. Like they're, they're very intensely using health to talk about the non-human world. Right. So earth first is saying that, you know, for earth first, the thing that comes before anything else is the health of the earth. Uh, Gary Snyder writes poems, um, talking about the health of the earth, talking about the health of Gaia, talking about the health of certain species, whales in particular. Um, and and this is all of these attempts are attempts very much outside of an anthropocentric framing of health. But when pushed to its edge, oftentimes turns into a very apocalyptic usage of health. So there's a few examples uh, that I can offer here that I you know, talk about in the book. When push to shove health, oftentimes for Earth First and Gary Snyder turned into a way of talking about humans as cancer on the Earth. Uh, There's several famous uh, or infamous perhaps writings from Earth First members where they talk about famine or about AIDS as in fact something which was good for the health of the Earth because it would eradicate the thing that was degrading the health of the earth. Um, And in those sort of apocalyptic end of days, pessimistic scenarios, what's happening is that health is no longer functioning as something which indicates the interconnection of all life forms on earth in a non-hierarchical way. It reveals itself as something which is fundamentally both about humans, but also about, identification and eradication of disease. And it's really because of that, at least in terms of you know my analysis, the the grounding of health and the origins of health, in attempts to identify pathological states and eradicate them that biocentrists run up against and in fact realize that health is in the end, <laughs> an anthropocentric term right that's mm-hmm. the case that the biocentrists can show us uh but they can only show us that precisely because of how far they took the concept itself.
1: yeah, that's great thanks uh, let's look, talk about the final chapter, which takes on the concept of planetary health and i'll I'll confess that sort of it's a sort of a phrase that my eyes kind of glaze over sort you of hear it so much, you know, and it seems like maybe it's the one we we were most presented with today and kind of brings to mind know, like an anodyne UN panel or something, you know, talking about, the, and I even saw it, not, not, no sooner than I thought that, that I saw in the Guardian yesterday in their article on the, the very um, um, uh, uh, grim report on extinction that the, 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 in the lead, it says, the most thorough planetary health check ever undertaken about that, about that study. Um, but this, this, this kind of anodyne term has a very wild history. Um, and how do we get to the concept of planetary <laughs> health?
0: Uh, yeah, that phrase was good. We can talk about that. The planetary health check uh framing yeah uh okay, so the the final chapter of the book, uh which as you're right, it does take on the concept of planetary health, uh begins that story with uh the British physicist uh James Lovelock, who I'm imagining many of our listeners may be familiar with. he's you know sort of a, acquired a certain kind of public reputation, right, both as a maverick independent scientist, but also as a uh climate change uh doomsayer he's been Uh, quite vocal about how he thinks humans are on the verge of extinction uh, because of what we've done to the planet. But the story that I tell in that particular chapter uh, begins in the 1960s. In fact, in the early 1960s, when Lovelock was working at NASA, uh, at its lab in in Pasadena, California, uh, and he had been hired as a consultant to a team that was trying to develop technologies to test whether there could be life on Mars. And this particular team thought that, you know, they, they functioned with this assumption that the life forms that would be on Mars would be identical to the life forms on earth. So they were trying to look for the life forms that exist on earth, right? Small level life forms. And Lovelock came in and said that, you know, that that seemed relatively unlikely and that in fact, his hypothesis was that, life was not a matter of form, but it was in fact a matter of um, activity. So what he wanted to look for was the extent to which um, there was evidence that the atmosphere of Mars was being altered by something on the surface of the planet. So from this, he started to develop, and this was with a colleague of his, Diane Hitchcock, who was a very temporary collaborator of his, started to develop the basic Uh, framework of the Gaia hypothesis, uh, which held that all forms of life on earth exerted an entropy reducing effect on the atmosphere. And this was in fact what not only constituted life, constituted the basic uh, properties of life, but this is what he came to refer to as Gaia. So Gaia being uh, kind of the conglomeration of all existing life forms on the planet um, with the lower atmosphere, which he saw as a self-regulating or a unit able to maintain its own homeostasis. This is really the basic uh, framework of the Gaia hypothesis, which as the chapter traces um, was not only wildly outside of the accepted geo Chemical consensus at the time, but in fact was you know rejected by the scientific community that he was hoping would take it up. And so part of the story this chapter tells is how Gaia in the 70s and 80s um, was rejected by the scientific community, but embraced wholeheartedly by a larger public. And I think this is in part the more familiar story about Gaia and about its ideas of planetary health and you know ideas that. Uh, fundamentally, the planet is self-regulating. But then, what turned into more critical questions for Lovelock and, and for you know his uh, followers in the 1980s, which is thoughts about how, what the role of humans is in the health of Gaia, right? So questions such as, are humans, uh, in fact, the brain of Gaia and meant to manage it? Um, are humans, in fact, uh, a plague on the planet that Gaia is soon to eradicate, um, etc. So that that's one particular story of planetary health. The other story I tell in that chapter, which may be where you started to, you know, find the chapter uh, becoming wild, was the story of of the role of oil corporations in all of this. So Lovelock himself, uh, of course, started work with NASA. He left NASA to work with Shell Oil, particularly the Shell Oil uh, Research Station located uh, slightly outside of London. And he was hired by Shell in the mid-1960s to begin researching the effects of fossil fuel combustion on the atmosphere. Okay? So this is part of, of course, you know, a larger story, uh, which has become well-publicized recently, of the ways in which... Oil corporations, ExxonMobil and Shell in particular, were deeply invested in researching the effects of their own activities on the global climate, particularly in the 60s and 70s. So Lovelock Lovelock is in on that um, from the very beginning. Uh, He's asked to research this. Uh, He's asked to write up uh, various kinds of reports on, you know, how he thinks Shell's own condition as a corporation uh, will have to adapt and will have to change uh, given the kinds of planetary changes that are that are soon to happen, uh, and so I, I won't give away you know too much of that particular story, but the chapter overall comes to the conclusion that Gaia, which is really the first vehicle for uh, talking about the health of the planet, um, was not only the product of certain forms of environmental activism, but was also the product of oil corporations who understood ideas about planetary health and models of planetary health to be ways in which they could continue business as usual, uh, just by putting their own stamp on the articulation of of the concept.
1: You got to read it, everyone. It's really, it's, it's quite a story. Um, thanks for sharing that. Uh, you conclude the book, um, Looking Forward into the Future. And, you know, you've spent many years now contemplating the possibilities of environmental politics arranged around health so what advice might you give to young activists today?
0: <laughs> um, what advice would I give? I mean, I guess I would, I would give kind of like 3 three re-interlocking pieces. And I, I don't even know that I would call this advice, right? These are just three things that, you know, I, I think are are unavoidable at this point, right? And the first one is that, you know, everything has to be shut down, right? Like there's there's no way that you can look at the way that this world is, is constructed at the present moment and make a case that reform is going to lead to any survivable outcome for any species on this planet, right? All of the systems that we live within, uh, the interlocking systems of capitalism, racism, fascism, environmental extraction and destruction, like these have all gotten to such a level that without, you know, putting your bodies on the gears, nothing in my assessment, nothing's going to change. And from that point, and I mean, we see that happening all over the world now, which is amazing. We can think just about very recent examples of what Extinction Rebellion is doing uh, in London, uh, what the water protectors did uh, in North Dakota, right? These cases are like very evocative uh, expressions of the fact that you know a growing number of people are realizing that it's only through the stopping of of all of these interlocking forms of oppression that you know any real change is going to happen and then once that happens and once systems of of confinement and exploitation are are dismantled then the next piece is to think about like what is the world what is the world that we sh- can and should inhabit right obviously that's that's going to be incredibly constrained by the kinds of planetary-scale environmental destruction, which is ongoing and is going to continue. Um, But it's very much about thinking about what does does a liberated society actually look like, right? And what does it look like in a way that goes far beyond simply the confines of human society and human politics, but in fact begins to give a real voice and a real place to other species uh, and other life forms, right? And, and, And some of what I talk about in the book, particularly Uh, in the third chapter about biocentrists, is trying to really spotlight activists who in their own local context really tried to make that happen, right? Really tried to build a different kind of a world and a different way of interrelation that allowed for the voices of other species and other life forms to influence and direct human affairs.
1: Thank you for that. The book again is "The Wild and the Toxic: American Environmentalism and the Politics of Health," and it's out on May thirteenth from University of North Carolina Press. Um, can I ask you once? You know, I, ho- I hope that once the book comes out, you are consumed by by uh, talking about it and promoting it everywhere. Um, once <laughs> once, the, once that comes calms down a bit uh, and you have some more control over your days, of uh, what project or projects will you turn your attention to next? I've got
0: several things uh, kind of floating on my mind. I'm I'm getting close to finishing an article that's, that's really looking at the oil corporations involvement in the articulation of planetary health, uh, looking at it uh, in a much more direct and, you know, not environmental activist specific way. So I guess I would be following through on uh, the argument of the fourth chapter of the book, but, but taking it uh, in a, in a much more, uh, economic direction. Uh, and, and then I'm, I'm toying around with an idea about a book about, uh, ecological anarchism on the one hand and a much larger, uh, much more intense project about the relationship between environmentalism and neoliberalism. So, That's that's what's sort of on the horizon (laughs) at this point.
1: (laughs) Goodness gracious. So please get to work as soon as you're able to. That sounds wonderful. And we look forward to having you back on the show when that comes. Thanks so much, Dr. Thompson.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much, Brian.